my sisters and non-binary siblings, please feel free to sit this one out. I need to talk to the men, you know, my boys. I know I said in the pilot episode that I wasn't going to proselytize, but fellas, have you thought about smashing the patriarchy with those big jacked arms of yours? I guess it's easier to stay in the master's house when you're given all the perks than it is to reject the good life. As for those among you who see through the patriarchy's bullshit, slide into my DMs, why don't you? But also, listen to this episode. It might help you call in your bros who need to be more informed. Because as sincere as you may be with being allies to women, the real work comes in betraying the patriarchal system from which you benefit. And if you look at the rise of populism in recent years, be it in the West or here in the Philippines, it's practically a suicide mission. Part 1. Angry white man in the Northwest, maginao pero medyo bastos in the Southeast. In his book, Angry White Man, American Masculinity at the End of an Era, American sociologist of masculinities, Michael Kimmel, explores and critiques America's phenomenon of the angry white male. So much of the book explains the ideology and context that led to the populism that fueled the Donald Trump rhetoric of Make America Great Again. Kimmel writes, quote, The new American anger is more than defensive. It is reactionary. It seeks to restore, to retrieve, to reclaim something that is perceived to have been lost. Angry white men look to the past for their imagined and desired future. They believe that the system is stacked against them. Theirs is the anger of the entitled. We are entitled to those jobs, those positions of unchallenged dominance, and we, when we are told that we are not going to get them, we get angry. It is that sense of entitlement thwarted what I will call aggrieved entitlement, that I believe characterizes America's new breed of angry white men." End quote. The MAGA rhetoric is aggrieved entitlement politically legitimized. Kimmel says that aggrieved entitlement can mobilize one politically, but it is often a mobilization toward the past, not the future, to restore that which one feels has been lost. Hence, the great again in Make America Great Again. Kimmel also says that these angry white men, you know, the white working class, the lower middle class, small businessmen, and even upper middle class men, are united not just because they're men, but because they believe in a certain ideal of masculinity. You know, their livelihoods are not the only ones they believe are threatened, but also their sense of themselves as men. America as we know it was built by white men who valued meritocracy and pull yourself up by the bootstraps ideology. No, apart from the colonization and the genocide of indigenous peoples, of course. These beliefs have been passed down from generation to generation, from father to son, even as America began to become more multicultural and the liberties of the marginalized began to be granted. Part of the flint that sparked the fire in these angry white men is America's outraged media, 
you know, like the likes of late radio shock jock Rush Limbaugh, Fox News, etc. And with angry white men fed with this steady diet of outraged media, they then lash out at women, the LGBTQ plus community, racial minorities, among others. That's how you get mass shooters, men's rights activists, incels, wife beaters, and no, I'm not referring to the white tank tops, and extreme right-wing white supremacists slash neo-Nazis with their tiki torches and the gall to storm the U.S. Capitol. That's how you get a failed businessman and reality TV host elected into the highest office in one of the most powerful countries in the world. For you see, Trump is not the problem per se, he is but a symptom. He's like an arsonist who ignited the tiki torch and let it make contact with the flammable, aggrieved entitlement held by the angry white man Kimmel wrote about. A model of masculinity that held on to certain values, you know, values that most of Trump's supporters hold on to themselves, never really went away even when America became multicultural and progressive. You know, the aggrieved entitlement never went away. It stayed under the surface. It gathered in groups in the shadows. And what about men here in the Philippines? Now, we don't have overt, angry men lashing out against feminism and other progressive politics and starting so-called men's rights groups, as far as I know. But I argue that we have a masculinity crisis. Filipino men don't have that sense of aggrieved entitlement in the way Kimmel defines it. But they do have terrible role models of masculinity. The same way America's angry white men have a terrible role model in Trump. And I know, I know, not all men. Lest we forget, 2021 began with hashtag not all men, with the Christine Dacero case being initially reported as an alleged case of rape and murder. And I know, I know, I know, not all men are diehard DDSs who'll do anything their supreme leader says. I know not all men are feminist haters. In fact, some men are sincerely feminist themselves, or at least respect the feminist cause. But at the same time, and I'll talk more on this later, not all men are calling out their fellow men's sexist, misogynist, toxic behavior. Not all men are willing to embrace feminism and instead choose to be apolitical when it comes to gender politics. So, what gives? You know, how did we get here, fellas? And what is Filipino masculinity like anyway? Did Duterte bring something new or did he just bring something out in Filipino men? In the creation myth, si Malakas at si Maganda, or the strong and the beautiful to my non-Filipino speakers, the story goes that the first man and first woman emerged from a single bamboo reed, different yet equal. In pre-colonial times, it is said that men and women were basically equal, you know, having the same rights to land and ownership, for example. But did you know what changed? 
if you guess colonization. Now, I don't know about you, but the legacy of 300 plus years of colonization doesn't rub off by washing your hands for 20 seconds. Apart from religion, last names, and food, we also inherited from our OG colonizers the gendered value of machismo, which is mainly characterized by privilege and virility. In his 1995 paper, Pagiging Lalaki, Pagkalalaki at Pagkamaginoo, or Being a Man, Masculinity, and Being a Gentleman, Leonardo del Castro says that since men are encouraged to prove this machismo of privilege and virility, being a man has stereotypically been associated with overcoming obstacles, losing one's virginity, and having a healthy libido. Filipino men are viewed or view themselves as strong, proud, brave, daring, courageous, rational, capable of fulfilling responsibilities, and attracted to cisgender women. No homo or traps, bro. Side note, the term trap is a derogatory term used in bro circles to describe transgender women. You know, even I, a cisgender woman, feel uncomfortable using it. But I use the term here for informational purpose and do not endorse its use in any other context. The stereotypical macho Filipino man tends to also be emotionally unavailable. You know, because feelings are a sign of weakness and worse, a sign of femininity. They are also extremely independent. No, because to be dependent is threatening. And they are incapable of forming close emotional bonds with other men. Because, again, no homo. Speaking of no homo, there is still the dominant practice of using bakla or gay as an insult thrown at a man who shows even the slightest hint of femininity or anything that doesn't show him as tough and emotionally detached. You know, bakla, and sometimes the similar term bading, continues to be used as a misnomer for a man who is effeminate even when he may or may not be sexually attracted to other men. And I will admit that I actually fell into this trap of perceiving straight men as exclusively hypermasculine or at least moderately masculine. And any man who had the slightest hint of effeminate aura, I pegged as not straight. So Filipino men are actually not that different from their Western counterparts when it comes to living up to a model of masculinity that encourages them to be the alpha. The aforementioned traits, physical strength, independence, dependability as the man of the house, these are seen as you know, positive gender traits and are often taken to be prescriptions of gender traits rather than just descriptions. So while traits such as strength, independence, courage, and dependability are absolutely necessary traits that any man should have, emotional detachment and fear of the effeminate are holding them back. Now, to be clear, I am referring, so far, to straight cis men. Now, as far as I know, a lot of 
gay men didn't drink the Kool-Aid of this model of masculinity that demands you to suppress your emotions. Not to mention, the lived experiences of trans men are vastly different from those of cis men. But I am neither a gay man nor a trans man. I am but a cis-hit woman talking to my boys. So, Fellas, you have to cry. If you don't cry, you're gonna kill somebody. And it is also worth noting that such models of masculinity are reproduced in Filipino pop culture. Dating as far back as the 1960s, action flicks have a mainstay in Philippine cinema, you know, creating the so-called action star who was often hyper-masculine and always ready to kick ass. You know, you have the likes of Fernanda Po Jr., Robin Padilla, Ramon Bong Revilla, Rudy Fernandez, Joseph Estrada, Lito Lapid, Ramon Revilla Sr., Jesse Lapid, Jerry Craval, Cesar Montano, Ronnie Ricketts, Eddie Garcia, and Dante Varona. If you're a millennial like me or a Gen Z, some of those names may not be familiar. Go ask your boomer parents or titos and titas who they are. Go, go. Or, some of those names may actually be familiar to you if you pay attention to politics. And so, what our country has seen for a long time, from the colonial times to post-colonial pop culture, was a model of masculinity that valued strength. You know, a man who is gentlemanly with a hint of vulgarity. You know, maginoo pero medyo bastos. But, in 2016, a tsunami was on the horizon. I'm not the only one who sees this, but there are undeniable similarities between Trump and Rodrigo Duterte. One of the most obvious similarities between them is that they both made misogynistic remarks prior to their election. Now, I actually sincerely thought that these would significantly hurt their chances of winning because I was hopeful enough to think society wouldn't find such behavior acceptable. Because feminism. Trump had his infamous grab them by the pussy remark, while Duterte had his dapat ang mayor ang mauna remark, or the mayor should have been first, in reference to an Australian missionary who was raped in Davao City. Yet, apparently, misogynistic remarks are easy to overlook when you're running for president of your country. It was a sort of recurring bit in the early years of the Duterte administration to have a news story about his latest remark about a woman or women in general. Now, in a 2017 article, Rappler reporter Pia Ranada wrote a feature piece titled Duterte, The Benevolent Sexist, in which she juxtaposed his sexist behavior as president with pro-women policies or programs implemented during his time as Davao City Mayor and later as president. If you think about it, it's a creepy Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation. His supporters consistently defended his sexist remarks as mere jokes that he was merely exaggerating. These days, however, the misogyny is rarely blanketed as jokes. 
No, Rocky isn't out here anymore doing damage control, gaslighting Filipinos into thinking those were just jokes. No, he's too busy gaslighting us about the pandemic response. In a study by Jeremy De Chavez and Vincent Pacheco of the University of Macau, they argue that the rise of Duterte brought to the fore a type of masculinity that involves spectacular performances that rehearse qualities of toxic masculinity while localizing such qualities, claiming that it is representative of the average Filipino male. Duterte isn't like the other Maginoo pero medyo bastos or gentlemanly but vulgar. He's bastos pero medyo maginoo, a vulgar who is sometimes a gentleman. He subverts the models of manners upheld by previous presidents, gentlemanly and occasionally casual just to be relatable. Now, perhaps the last president who was, in a way, subversive in that he was maginoo pero medyo bastos and unconventional in manners of being makamasa or for the people was the impeached President Joseph Estrada. Yes, the action star I listed earlier. Instead, Duterte's brand is that of crassness and vulgarity, especially towards women, you know, packaged as authentic and relatable. As De Chavez and Pacheco argue, Duterte's masculinity is a continuation rather than a break from the dominant model of Philippine hegemonic masculinity. Now, to the uninitiated, hegemonic masculinity is basically a set of practices that legitimizes men's dominant position in society, aka they're the alpha, and justifies the subordination of women and even other men who do not conform to the dominant model of masculinity, aka everybody else's beta. Furthermore, his vulgarity and misogyny are often dressed in nationalist and anti-colonialist rhetoric. A rhetoric which I think really won him over 16.5 million votes in the 2016 national election. Even exit poll from the social weather station shows that even when you break down demographic subgroups according to socioeconomic class and educational attainment, voters still overwhelmingly favored Duterte. Perhaps much of it can be linked to a dissatisfaction with the administration that came before him, an administration that left the middle class to bear burdens while the poor had their pantawid pamilya and the rich had their public-private partnerships. And when Duterte positioned himself as a common man when he was a candidate and later as president, the father of the nation, I, I get it. As opposed as I was back then and as opposed as I am now, I get where his voters were coming from. The Chavez and Pacheco note how his powerful spectacle is able to capitalize on the masses' socio-political anxiety and anti-colonial sentiments by providing a vision of change and progress contingent on crass hyper-masculine performance. It's his perceived authenticity despite his vulgarity, blatant misogyny, and hunger for violence that have endeared his legion of supporters. They seem to tolerate and even accept these, but again, not 
all men. Part 2. Men in Feminism In her work of feminist theory, From Margin to Center, Bell Hooks dedicated an entire chapter presenting the argument that men are comrades in struggle. She points out that Western liberal feminists push to make women's liberation synonymous with gaining social equality with men. These feminists essentially assign the women with yet another sex role task, making feminist revolution. While the lib feminists were busy rounding up women for the feminist cause, she says that men weren't called in to participate in struggling to end sexist oppression. This inadvertently affected the misconception of the zero-sum game that if feminism succeeded in ending women's oppression, then it's game over for men. They would then be the oppressed in the new femme order. In a way, Hooks was saying not all men, but really what she was proposing was this, quote, To return to an emphasis on feminism as revolutionary struggle, women can no longer allow feminism to be another arena for the continued expression of antagonism between the sexes. The time has come for women active in feminist movement to develop new strategies for including men in the struggle against sexism." End quote. I count myself among the feminists who advocate for calling in men to be our allies, our comrades in the fight to eradicate sexist oppression. Because until Themyscira becomes a real-world place and not just a product of DC Comics' imagination, we women are stuck with the men. I'm kidding, of course. In preparation for this episode, I looked up whether there are any existing pro-feminist men's groups in the Philippines. I've already encountered one group while I was working on my master's thesis, but I wanted to see if there was more. Surprise, but no surprise, there seems to be only one men's group for male allies in feminist cause. Men opposed to violence everywhere, or MOVE. By the way, I am hoping to be proven wrong about this and that someone tells me there are men's groups out there geared towards being feminist allies. If I could be mansplained about anything, be willing to be mansplained about this. Formerly known as Men Opposed to Vow, Violence Against Women Everywhere, MOVE was organized in 2006 with the help of the then National Commission on the Role of the Filipino Women to be an organization of men who committed themselves to be actively involved in the elimination of vow. Think of it as he for she, but specific to addressing violence. MOVE came in some of the articles I analyzed for my graduate thesis. And from what I can infer, MOVE operates in government agencies. For example, the Department of Social Welfare and Development or the local government units. But even MOVE has a hard time moving the cause forward. For instance, in the articles I analyzed, I noticed that the last mention of the organization was in 2018. Even then, the discourse was still on encouraging other government agencies 
to call on the men in their workforce in, in the campaign to end vow. I guess you can say that they're still trying to get the cause moving. <laughs> okay, that's the last pun. Perhaps it's no wonder why there aren't enough men who openly identify as feminists or at least call bullshit on patriarchy. Remember, most of you Filipino men grew up with a model of masculinity that I talked about earlier. And much of the country's political leaders uphold such models of masculinity. In fact, it's not just Duterte and the aforementioned action stars turned politician. Just as I'm preparing for this episode, boxer turned Senator Manny Pacquiao displayed the kind of toxic masculinity I'm encouraging you to do, to do away with. As a response to a recent hate crime against a Filipina woman in New York City, Pacquiao put out a challenge of fight me instead while at the same time tweeting in all caps love and peace to everyone. So the allies among you are limited to government agencies and units who perhaps may be doing so in compliance to the Magna Carta of women. Again, I would love, 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 love to be proven wrong on this. And when I'm sussing out the allies, especially the ones who get news media coverage, I can't help but get the impression that much of it is performative. This performance becomes literal in the In Her Shoes marches. Remember these? You know, this typical Women's Month activity where men walk a mile in literal heels as a gesture of solidarity. It seems like the local news media, at least where I'm from, would eat up this In Her Shoes march with public information officers writing about the march with very real news leads like it was a sight to behold as 10 male police and three jail personnel wore high heels and other women's shoes during the city's launching of women's month at the city hall grounds the brave men said they borrowed their shoes from their wives mothers sisters relatives co-workers and girlfriends and as a woman, I guess, what else can I say? Whoa, this is worthless. <sighs> Look, if I wanted to see butch men in high heels, I'd watch a makeover episode from RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> God. The problem with In Her Shoes marches and move organizers just encouraging other government agencies to form their own move is that it doesn't address the real source of women's oppression, at least from a certain point of view, which is sexist oppression. There's a tweet by writer Sidra Ahmad Chan that went viral in 2018, which I think encapsulates this whole issue. Quote, I don't want men to be allies. I want you to be traitors. I want you to be traitors to the system that violently holds you up at the expense of women. I want you to betray the silent pact that patriarchy makes with you to have your back so long as you don't make waves. Revolt. End quote. 
I believe part of what holds men back from betraying patriarchy is the idea of the bro code. You know, bros over hoes. Bros over hoes doesn't just apply to the arena of dating, but I've observed that it applies to most gender relations as well. It's why hashtag not all men is the reactionary statement when an allegation of sexual misconduct becomes a trending topic or when group chats are leaked where young men are exposed for objectifying and sexualizing women, talking about them in lewd and degrading ways. It's why a best man would help hide the body of the stripper whom his best bro murdered. No, wait, no, 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 wait, no, wait, nah, th that's from Promising Young Woman. It's true that not all men overtly oppress women, but not all men hold other men accountable. The existing dominant models of masculinity are shackling you to live in such a way that you're expected to emulate standards that your forefathers have come up with, and you have men in positions of immense power serving as models for your performance of that masculinity. Conclusion What the fuck are you doing? I'm not going to end this episode on the note of, well, this is how things are, roll credits. So, my boys, bros, like Sidra Ahmad Chan, I am calling on you to be traitors to the system that violently holds you up at the expense of women. If we really aren't in the darkest timeline and the 2022 national elections are going to push through as it should, I call on you to interrogate your political leaders on where they stand on feminist causes and what they concretely plan to do about it. And demand more from your local government units who are mandated by the Magna Carta of Women to allocate at least 5% of their total budget allocation to implement gender and development programs. Tell them to do better than limiting themselves to Women's Month activities or the 18-day campaign to end violence against women. And if you don't think it's possible to be a traitor to the system or at least the bro code, let me tell you about Lars Peter Johnson and Carl Frederick Arndt. Johnson and Arndt were part of the highly publicized criminal case story of Brock Turner, the 19-year-old Stanford University star athlete who sexually assaulted 22-year-old Chanel Miller, then anonymized as Emily Doe. Their involvement in the story is not from them being bystanders or helping Turner hide his crime. Here's an excerpt from Chanel Miller's memoir, Know My Name. Alone at night, when I felt the weight of 20 sandbags on my chest, I would open the police report and read. Johnson caught up to Turner and did a leg sweep and tripped Turner. Turner fell to the ground and tried to get up. Johnson said it looked like he was trying to get up and run away again, so he tackled him to the ground. Johnson straddled Turner and held his arms down as Arndt held his leg down. He told Turner he was not letting him up until he figured out what was going on and he wanted to make sure that victim was okay. 
I reminded myself this was not simply a fight between perpetrator and victim. There was a third element, the Swedes. They represented the seers, the doers, who chose to act and change the story. Miller goes on to quote from the police report, noting that Johnson became very upset, to the point where he began crying while recounting the incident. Johnson said that it was a very disturbing event for him to witness and be involved in, and he just reacted to the situation at hand without really thinking. To that, Miller writes, What we needed to raise in others was this instinct, the ability to recognize, in an instant, right from wrong, the clarity of mind to face it rather than ignore it. I learned that before they had chased Brock, they had checked on me. Masculinity is often defined by physicality, but that initial kneeling is as powerful as the leg sweep, the tackling. Masculinity is found in the vulnerability, the crying. At the night of Miller's assault, it was reported that the Swedes bolted Brock Turner to the ground and said, What the fuck are you doing? She's unconscious. Do you think this is okay? What are you smiling about? Say sorry to her. Don't mistake this episode as me telling you to reject masculinity per se. What I am asking you to reject is the idea that you have to live up to these models of masculinity that you were taught to live up to. Instead, define masculinity for yourself. So, to those of you who genuinely believe hashtag not all men and want to do the work of betraying the system that privileges you, ask yourself, ask your bros, do you think this is okay? What the fuck are you doing? Thanks for joining me in this episode of A Feminist in Progress. You can send an email at feministinprogresspod at gmail.com for comments, conversation, and collaboration. The link to the transcript of the episode is in the episode description. And if you find value in what I do, consider giving a donation via paypal.me slash feministinprogress. Again, that's paypal.me slash feministinprogress. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at Feminist in Progress Pod. And remember, progress, not perfection. <laughs>